Each one of us at the table knows that one day we'll be part of the meal. I just absolutely love that. It's like feel that we're in this position of great privilege of being, you know, here and cognitive rest of it. But you know what? Our atoms will dissolve away and they will eventually become part of the meal. All right, all right. Oh, that was my Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> all right, all right, all Man. right. Dang it. <laughs> Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast, everybody. We are your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson. And boy, are we both exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> John's in the middle of moving. I'm job transitioning. Neither of us have any rhythm in our life. And we have large, dark circles under our eyes. But we're still smiling. We're still here. We're still here for you. <laughs> bringing you the juice. Today, we've got another friend of the good Dr. Peter Rollins. Yeah. Another kind of uh, avant-garde philosopher and theologian. Mathematician? Is that mathematician? Yeah, math teacher. Math teacher. Um, (laughs) Another great accent. I mean, can we just do the American thing and talk about, like, he's enjoyable to listen to. We have have accent envy in America. And? Because we have accents like... No offense, but we have some pretty... I won't even name any specific geographical accents, but they're there's pretty some, bad. There's some ugly ones. Yeah. I don't think the... <laughs> the Midwest is a little nasally. We're probably a little nasally. Yeah. But I would just wish that I had a nice British accent. Right? I know. Anyway, <laughs> so we're, we're thankful to our beloved friend, Pete Rollins, for introducing us to this fantastic guest. So who do we got here, John? We who, have Kester Bruin. Kester freaking Bruin. Yep, he is, as you said, he's a uh, math, uh, math teacher, philosopher. Um, he gets into, he probably fits into that pyrotheology category. Oh, yeah, pyro-radical theology, that kind of deal. Yep. Yeah, just a really interesting guy. He's done a TEDx. Um, he he, he started writes off, for the Huffington Post. Yeah, in the emerging church. Yes. Kind of deal. And then was like, ah, it's not far enough. Like, ooh, what do you mean? Yeah. So this is a really interesting conversation. Yeah. Really interesting, because his work is interesting. His work is really interesting. All of these things kind of come together in his work, and he, he does a really good job surveying culture and looking at kind of you know, the, the commonalities between things that are going on in different parts of the culture that are all getting at the same thing, and maybe they don't even know it. Yeah. So in his book, Getting High, which we spend a whole lot of time talking about, which is just a great title. <laughs> yeah. um, one of the, air, to be clear, it has an airplane on the It front, does, like a jet. Or a shuttle. Like a shuttle. Is that a shuttle? Yeah, yeah I think shuttle. it's a shuttle. Yeah. So... You know, just to be clear, one of the things that John and I, it kind of launched us into this project in a way, is we hated the escapism in a lot of what theology was. It's all about going to heaven someday. The world can go to hell in a handbasket. It doesn't even matter. You know, it's all this really ethereal, kind of out there. You know, your beliefs even kind of exist out there. And uh, Kester really talks about a lot of that stuff in this book, this, this need to escape, this need to get high, you know, all these different avenues that we do this. So it was a really fun Fun conversation. Really fun. Yeah, you guys are going to like it. Um, before we get to the episode, though, just some uh, house cleaning stuff. We have that Alive event coming up. Oh, yeah. April 28th in Denver, Colorado. So if you guys are uh, from that area, around that area, we still have some tickets available. They are only $10. Uh, if you go to eventbrite.com and search the Deconstructionist Live, 
Um, it'll come up, or if you go to our website, www.thedeconstructionist.com, mm-hmm. click on the event tab, and it'll take you right to tickets. Um, tell your friends, and uh, come on out for a fun evening. We got some surprises in store. We got a little music. Um, we're going to have a good time. So It's going to be so much fun just to be together, to talk, to just, yeah, to do this together. Man, we are excited to come out and hang out with you guys. Thanks for making yourselves available. Get yourself some tickets. Tell your friends it's going to be a good time. And the 10 bucks really just goes to cover the venue so we can all hang out. Yep. Yep. And um, what else? Thanks um, to the Patreon people. Yeah. If you've ordered some stuff. We're a little backed up because our lives are in disarray, but yeah, our studio is moving. Hang, hang tight. <laughs> hang tight. And um, yeah, just hope you guys are having a great year. This is a fun episode. You guys are going to enjoy it. You got anything else? No. Without further ado, Kester freaking, freaking Bruin. Dancing on my guitar. I spill my colors onto the floor like a newborn label to the earth. I thought that it was righteous. All right, everybody. Well, it's uh it's my honor, and I'm I'm pretty pretty stoked to bring you guys a really, really fun, interesting guest, Kester Bruin. All the way from UK, staying up late tonight, having a little port. Thank you so much <laughs> for hanging with us on the Deconstructionist podcast today. This is going to be a fun conversation. Thanks for making some time. Uh, really looking forward to it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Well, I, I think that you have a very interesting backstory. So I think the, uh, the, the proper place to start would be to talk about kind of your background. Um, we know a little bit, but we'd like for you to, to kind of lay it out to the audience a little bit. Um, you, you definitely, uh, grew up in a similar upbringing to me. It sounds like a very religious upbringing, um, you know, kind of raised in the church as it were, um, even singing in the choir. I think I heard you say once, um, <laughs> so talk a little bit about that and, uh, kind of how you were raised. Yeah. I mean, it goes back a, a hell of a long way, like, you know, before, before me for sure. I mean, my, you know, I think my great grandfather, you know, was kind of some preacher dude in in Scotland, and all the rest of it. My dad is a is a Church of England minister. Uh, so is my uncle. So is like another uncle. I mean, it's just like completely in the family. So um, yeah, I was brought up um, definitely kind of growing up in and around the church, and you know, completely in that myself. Uh, singing in the choir, as you said, I wasn't actually very good, I have to say. <laughs> so. <laughs> But I enjoyed wearing the dresses, so, you know. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> you loved it. Anyway, um, you know, and then it was kind of, it was kind of funny, actually, because then, then we had the, the whole kind of, uh, you, you guys remember, like, the Kansas City Prophets? Like, those guys came over to my dad's church. There's all this kind of really big style, charismatic thing going on as well. All right. I ended up uh, heading down to university in Bristol. And I, I, you know what? I, I, was, I was actually pretty ready just to take some time out from that. Uh, and then literally the first person I met at university was like, hey, yeah, you fancy coming to church on Sunday night? So I was like, oh, okay, yeah, come on then, let's go back. So, you know, so I kind of got into that too. Then, like, Toronto blessing hit, if you remember that oh, stuff. Oh, yeah, and, there yep. you go. That was like a massive craziness. Um, but weirdly, it was almost like the beginning of the end in many ways for me because it was like oh okay um you know here is this intense experience but 
what's actually happening in terms of change, what's actually going on politically for people, what's happening in terms of justice. Like, you know, what other than, you know, people rolling around laughing is actually going on. And also, like, this is a fairly wealthy part of London that uh, this church was based in where I was going at the time. And it's like, well, hold on a minute. You know, why, we, why is God putting gold in the, tea, in, the, in the mouths of, like, the rich people when there's some people who probably, you know, can really do with that? Um, so from that, I kind of started heading from the front pew towards the back pew and then ended up out the back door and met some very cool creative people. And we set up a thing called Vox, which was like a, um, well, it's a number of things. I mean, it, we, it was a, a kind of architecture practice, I suppose. We, we, we designed spaces within which people could experience, uh, you know, different forms of worship, could, it, could kind of uh, explore different kinds of theological expression. There was a lot of films, a lot of dance, there was a lot of kind of poetry and uh, visual art stuff going on, which was quite, you know, it was quite radical at the time. Yeah. This is like, this is like mid-90s. And um, I guess it was like moving from a, from a kind of big cruise liner down to a tiny yacht, you know, like you feel every wave and you're, you're kind of in control a bit and you're heading off in a different space and it's not like the whole entertainment's put on for you. So um, it was, you know, it's a different vehicle. And, and that kind of led us into really kind of great questions about what the whole thing was about. And I suppose it ended up as a kind of exit vehicle for us from mainstream Christianity. Um, now, it was actually then through that I was kind of doing a bit of blogging about Vox stuff and people were writing PhDs about it. Don't ask me why. I mean, it didn't seem like worthy of a PhD to us, you know. Uh, you know, like both people who came thought it was all right. But, um, <laughs> you know. But, yes, out of that came a first book. And I guess the writing has then very naturally become, for me, a, a way of sort of interrogating the world and faith and all that kind of stuff. So it's been through that that I've kind of pushed on um, and carried on exploring, which has been, a, you know, just a really, really interesting journey and for many people they would definitely say oh you know you're not a christian anymore i would kind of say like oh i kind of think i'm more of a christian than i ever was before but um you know <laughs> hey who's using labels so um yeah so it's kind of through that that got into the i suppose what people might call the radical theology movement um that kind of stuff and um you know continue to to write bits and bobs about that and hook up with people like Pete Rollins and Barry Taylor and uh, Catherine Moody and, and, you know, people like that. So, yeah, um, who knows? Who knows where we can go from there? But uh, that's a little kind of a bit of a backstory. I, for, for my, you know, to try, and, to try and earn a bit of cash, I, I teach mathematics um, at what you'd probably call high school, I guess. So, yeah, that's what I do today, day to day. And, in fact, I really like the fact that I have a day job. You know, I don't do preaching for money. That's yeah, awesome. Just, yeah, I think it's important. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah, I get it, man. I, I was in the same boat for a, quite a while until I stopped doing the pastor thing. <laughs> right. I ne never got paid for it. It, just, it, was, it was for fun. I, yeah, and I think, you know, I, I, I kind of, there's a lot of people who uh, I really feel for them because they've invested very, very heavily into being pastors and they've got the house, they've got the healthcare plan you know if it's your side of the world and then you know and all of that stuff and then they're like hey uh what do i do if i don't believe this anymore and you know how do i then support my family how do i then do any kind of life at all because 
there's no other skills there. So I, I, I think it's a really, really significant issue. Um, but yeah. 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 Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things I want to ask you, wanted to ask you is, um, something that I'm always fascinated with, which is anyone who grows up in the church, you know, whether mm. they're, they're, they have a parent who's on leadership or is an actual pastor or whatever the case may be. Um, I've yeah. always felt personally, uh, you know, my dad is still a pastor and, uh, was yeah. a pastor since I was very young. Yeah, um, minus two. So yeah, so what I, I've always felt, at least personally, and at least you know, with the the small core group of friends that I have, who who are also you know, as as we call them, PKs or pastors' kids. Yeah. Um. It, it. I almost felt like there was a different kind of unique journey, uh, faith journey that that we go on. Um. In, in the way that I, I felt like, at least for me, anyway, by the time I got to university, um. Yeah. I, I think that was probably the time period where I started to try to ask questions and differentiate between what my parents believed and what, what I believe personally. And, yeah, and yeah. felt like I had a very hard time doing that initially. Was that the case for you as well? Yeah. I think the thing is, you know, because you're on the inside, you probably begin to have to ask those more difficult questions sooner. Partly because, you know, if it's, if it's your dad, like it was with me and with you, you know, you're living with the person, like, you, you know, they don't get to say, Oh, you know, do as I, say but not as I do you know because you get to see what they do I mean you know if they're not practicing what they're preaching then you get to see that pretty damn straight away you know so um and and I think there's that real kind of closeness to it that that's so important um and and a kind of intensity that you that means that you begin to interrogate that uh in terms of that relationship being you know kind of a core family dynamic too so there's definitely an intensity there which is um, I can, I think kind of core to that experience and that can be a really good thing. It can be a really, really tough thing. And I know that in, well, certainly the life of my family and in the lives of a very, very significant number of, of pastor families that I know of, that's been a, a really, really tough thing for, for, for lots of reasons. Yeah. Partly to do with this idea of, you know, this kind of myth of perfectionism and the kind of, uh, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, because, you know, obviously you are their kid, but in fact, um, you know, if they're working for God and God says there's a meeting every night of the week, like, who are you to argue? You know, like, like you want to see your dad and kick a ball in the garden, but I'm sorry, but God is a bit more important than me. So, right. um, yeah, it's, 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 it's that kind of tricky thing of can the pastor be a family man, you know, uh, and, and, Though, though all those passages about giving up family and stuff become pretty become pretty real actually mm. for, for 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 those for those kids and for spouses and all the rest of it. You know, in the in the book that we'd like to, you know, talk with you a little bit about your newest book, uh, Getting High. Mm. It's so much, so much here, and it's it's also a very personal book. Um, it is, and you know what? That it it didn't begin that way. Um, and and weirdly, like most of the books I've written, I've started. I mean, I, I generally write just because I get interested in something. I'm not yeah. trying to. I'm not trying to do something because other people might be interested. I just kind of write because I'm interested in it and like, Hey, best, you know, best reason to do it. Best reason to do yep. it. So I'd written a book about the history of 
the human yearning for flight. And um, I sent it to an agent and she was like, hey, this is great. She said, but you know what? There's a story here, which is, I feel like is underneath that you're not quite telling. And that's your story. I was like, oh, damn it. (laughs) (laughs) I just got busted because, yeah, she was quite right. And I thought, well, actually, two things like I, you know, the only way I can honestly tell this story is, is to put something of myself in there. But then I was also, I'd become a bit concerned, like that the radical theology thing, which I've been a, been a part of, had kind of just um, become a little bit, you know, too ethereal. And it's all kind of Hegel this and, you know, Deleuze that and stuff. I was like, you know, where's the personal stories in that? Mm. Like, where does this actually drill down into who the person is rather than a kind of cloaking of the person behind all the terminology and all the rest of it. And, you know, for me, like I'm, you know, I'm just interested in stories in a really, really big way. I, I love fiction. I love, I love Shakespeare. And I was like, okay, I think it's, it's right. It's kind of like people deserve to know where this stuff has come from for me, you know, um, not, not wanting to, pretend to tell anyone else's story, but, you know, for my story. And, and it's, so it's really, really important to, to do that, to make this book um, a book which probably communicates my theological thinking probably clear, more clearly than anything else I've written, but also tries to communicate something of the story behind that, uh, which I hope, it, I hope it gets to, yeah. I would love to see the reaction on somebody's face when they, you know, first get a look at the book and the cover and it's got the rocket and, you know, getting high, mm-hmm. a savage journey into the heart of the dream of flight. And, you know, I can, I can think of like some aspiring young pilot, you know, being, <laughs> like, being like, oh yeah, this is going to be really good. And then, you know, they tear it open and it's all about psychedelia and transcendence and <laughs> Apollo and radical theology and, Oh, it's like, man. oh my gosh, what is going on? But, you know, you take all these really abstract, like seemingly uh, disparate concepts and you, you cut to the heart of something that is very, very true about humanity. And, and woven throughout that, you've got your own story. And, you know, before we kind of start getting into some of the, the fun, nerdy stuff about the book, um, mm. you know, p- part of your, your journey in, interwoven here. I think that I'd love to have you just kind of tease out a little bit is, is how um, your faith kind of changed and evolved. Yeah, I mean, um, so, I, I, you know, I begin the book telling, you know, of it, like, I hope you'll understand that like, the book is true. So I begin the book by telling the story of my, of, uh, like my sixth birthday party where I was taken to see the first Star Wars movie. This is like back in, yeah. the, you know, like mid, late 70s. And honestly, you know, this is a guy growing up in the in the kind of North Midlands of England in a in a coal mining village. So there's a lot about being underground there. And I'd never been on a plane. I'd never even really seen planes. I'd never been to an airport or anything. So the highest thing in the village we know was the church, and it was the church tower. I mean, that that was it. So uh, what Star Wars did for me was kind of open up the ceiling, really, and, mm. and give me a sense of whoa there is a much higher sky than I'd imagined. And that kind of came at exactly the time when, uh, you know, kind of personally within my family, it became clear that I kind of needed probably to lift away from a few things. Um, Basically, my sister had become very, very ill, Mm. and it kind of chucked a grenade into the middle of our family situation. 
And yet, you know, the means of altitude that was offered was just very straightforward. It's like, well, Jesus will lift us away, you know, and we'll go to heaven. Yep. So these kind of vectors of lift were what my religious experience were really about. Um, and I kind of tie that into the whole draw towards the charismatic stuff, uh, to the whole kind of ecstatic experience. Um, and really, you know, this kind of ancient root within religion of lifting us away from an impure earth up towards uh, a kind of reunity with a pure heaven. Mm. And of course, you know, in Christian terms, what we call the thing that separated us from that initially is the fall, right? It, you know, it's kind of gravity. It's kind of pulling us down into the earth. So, you know, these, these kind of vector notions of religion were really, really key to my understanding. And I think um, kind of latterly, it was, it was the kind of idea of the incarnation of this return to earth, which was just super important, super important that actually it is that return down to earth that just becomes so, so vital. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of, the book, the book is kind of slightly crazy in that it, it, it draws in and tries to tie together the psychedelic movement, uh, the Apollo space missions, kind of the birth of the internet, and the kind of long history of why humans have wanted to fly, which I think is a really, really ancient thing. And for me personally, you know, why I wanted to escape as well. Like, mm. um, and religion has generally been the technology with which we do that. You know, we use it as a technology to, to, to lift off and to try and raise ourselves into a pure place again. Yeah. Mm. What I think is really interesting um, about your personal journey is that it sounds like you were, you were kind of born and raised in more of like what we would call like a traditional, you know, you said, I think you said church of England, um, yeah. And then kind of encountered this extremely charismatic evangelical movement later on, which was very much the, you know, my situation as well. Totally. Did yeah. not, yeah. was not born and raised in the evangelical movement, encountered it while I was in college. Mm. And I remember, you know, this, this kind of made me remember um, a paper I wrote in college where I broke down um, kind of the format of an evangelical service that I encountered. And I thought even the music is kind of designed in such a way that it, kind of has this this emotional climax at the end. Yep. And so yeah. all of the congregants are kind of in this fever pitch by yeah, the ending. Absolutely. And I remember my dad asking me this question. He said, well what happens after the service is over? What are you left yeah. with? And yeah. he goes, he goes, if you can say that you're left with something, that you're holding on to something real, then great. Yeah. But if not, then what was the point? And it and it wow. sounds like you kind of ran into a similar situation when kind of uh, life situations like the situation with your sister becoming ill kind of crashed into um, yeah. this this uh, um, this life of faith that you had at, at you know at this point. And it, it sounds like you know you kind of had some some issues and it kind of started to unravel a little. Mm. So so at what point? Um, I think I think I remember you saying that even after your sister started to get better, you you still felt as if something wasn't quite right. So what at what point you know did you realize like something you know I'm going to have to to move in some direction? Uh, what what did that look like though? I guess when some friends and I started this thing, Vox, um, it it was essentially a deconstruction, 
you know, I mean, and that's uh, why it's kind of, you know, great to talk to you guys in terms of name and everything, because, you know, that's what we were doing. We were saying, look, we're not, we're not going to burn it down, but we're going to take things apart piece by piece and, and look at the stuff that's, that's there and see if we want to build again, you know, and see how we might build again. And when you start to deconstruct, you're like, oh, okay, this is like super interesting um, how all these pieces kind of come apart and what are we actually left with there. Now, the courage to do that, Mm. um, you know, it does take a lot of courage because what what you're deconstructing isn't just kind of some little Sunday experience. It's the whole thing. And this is what really interests me about about the kind of radical theology movement is that if it only deconstructs this kind of experience of, you know, a Christian thing on a Sunday, then it's completely failed. Yeah. If it doesn't also have an impact on deconstructing how, um, you know, this kind of um, evangelical theology fits in with economics and with politics and all the rest of it, then it's mm. completely failed. Like, yeah. it, it, it's almost like letting a virus go and it works on one part of your life, and then it begins to work on the rest as well. Mm. Uh, so it, it, I, I suppose the, the moment really was, you know, setting up this thing, Vox, and then, um, you know, through that, doing that exploration. But one of the key uh, things for me is uh, when the guy I set up Vox with um, very suddenly was diagnosed with a, with a chronic cancer, and he died 10 months later. He was... He was age uh, 45 um now that's like the real deal yeah it's like okay you know we can start we can talk this we can talk that and we're kind of you know not not exactly young but not exactly old and then it's like oh okay so let's talk about death and you know this was a an enormous privilege spending 10 months you know talking with my best friend about you know okay he is gonna die so what do we do? Do we go running back and start praying again? Do we start asking for healing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And it's like, okay, you've got to really stare this thing down and you've really got to work this out because, wow. you know, are you, are you actually going to have the courage of your theology here? And my God, like he did, you know, and he was a son of a pastor, just like me, like super smart guy, very thoughtful. And he, he was incredibly gracious. Like, you know, if people wanted to pray for him, he wasn't going to be like, oh, man, bugger off, whatever. There's no kind of <laughs> yeah. Um, But was very, very clear. Like, okay, you know, this is, this is it. Um, and, the, I, you know, he, I think he's quoting, uh, he was quoting someone else, but that this, this phrase that he reminded me of, which I, I talk about in the book, which, which was each one of us at the table knows that one day we'll be part of the meal. And I, I just absolutely loved that. It's like we, we feel that we're in this position of great privilege of being, you know, here and cognizant of the rest of it. But you know what? Our atoms will dissolve away and they will eventually become part of the meal. Like, so that was a massive, like, thing for me. And, and in the aftermath of that, I had a chance to interview the uh, philosopher Simon Critchley, who I was a big fan of already. I think he's written some great books uh, and some great books of theology, actually. Um, 
but it was very soon after Nick's death, my friend's death. And I said to him, Hey, you know, come on, like, what do you think? Do you, you know, do you believe in the afterlife? And he goes, yeah, you know, I believe in the life of those who come after. Yeah. Um, in other words, look, you know, we, we walk towards death, hoping that we have lived a life in such a way that those who come after us will be able to get up from the grave and walk away and feel that they are stronger and better and more able to live good lives because of the example we've given. Now that for me is a, is a solid, is a solid Christian faith that I will have that doesn't need to be transcendent. You know, I'm not interested in ideas of, of necessary resurrection or any of that. It's, it's that, that idea of, of, uh, of us being ready for, um, you know, the afterlife, the life of those who will come after us. And that has an environmental, an environmental impact. It's got an economic impact. It's all of these things, um, you know, a parenting impact for those who have children and so on. Man, that's really, that's really, really good. Um, I was wondering, actually, because um, I've realized we've used a term uh, not only on this episode but several times in the podcast, mm. and I don't think we've ever really gotten a chance to give some listeners that maybe aren't familiar um, yeah. an, an overview of uh, what we mean when we say radical theology. Could you just give like a quick kind of like, what do you mean by that? A couple, couple thoughts on like what, when we say radical theology and people are like, what are you, what are you talking about? Oh, it's just the same old bullshit with a new name, mate. Don't worry about it. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> it's, a, it's a catchy title. Yeah. <laughs> it is, yeah. Um, oh, it's, I mean, that's a really tricky one. Like I know, a, man. I'm sorry to of, do that to you. I, I just... No, no, but I want to I answer it. I want to answer it. I think it's a fantastic <laughs> question. Because, it, it, again, like, I, I have a kind of complex relationship with the term um, it, 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 it's difficult because, you know, what the hell does it mean? I mean, who the hell knows what it means? That's I how think, we feel about deconstruction. I think, yep. <laughs> yeah. It's, for, it's, it's a term that's been used for those who've become interested in a deconstruction, particularly of a, of a theology that is around transcendence. Um, it's those who, um, you know, want to kind of look for a, you know, radical, a kind of different route, as it were. Mm. Uh, so one that's definitely critiquing, um, you know, evangelicalism in that way and the kind of charismatic side, but also I think, uh, you know, the kind of mythic elements of those in the high church and all the rest of it. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a, an idea of exploring theology of incarnation that that's not about, um, you know, needing that, that transcendent element. However, uh, I, I think it's not, it would be, it would be kind of crazy to say that it's radical. Uh, I, you know, it's kind of disappointing to see that over the number of years where I've kind of hung around people on that, that actually that radical edge is just, you know, it would be, it would be, it would be fallacious to call it, to call it radical really. Um, I think it's, it's, it's too often backed itself into a cul-de-sac and become, overly concerned with with you know counting the number of non-existent angels on the head of of, of pins you know <laughs> <it's> like, <laughs> um, with and actually that the, the problem is is that by focusing on that 
it's another way of avoiding the real issue, which is like, holy shit, what am I actually going to do if I really do radically change my beliefs? Mm, yeah. So there's a lot in there's a lot in the kind of original radical theology stuff about um, about engaging in doubt and like, oh, you know, I'm I, I'm not sure, and I, I kind of express a the theology of doubt, and it's like, okay, but there's only a certain amount of time where you can do that, and it's a helpful thing to do, right? Because you know what? It actually then becomes a way of sustaining your old beliefs by just saying, I'm not sure if I believe them anymore. And it's a way of avoiding having to take genuine decisions and, and to confront difficult issues. Yeah, it becomes a new defense mechanism like other dogmas. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, it, it, you know, this, this kind of idea of being kind of uh, whatever about your beliefs then itself becomes a way of avoiding critiquing your beliefs it's like this is bullshit yeah no i yeah i get that i, I totally, I, I totally I, get what I, you're saying you know i've tried to i've tried to bring that to the table and it doesn't always go down too well i mean it's kind of interesting there's kind of there's been certain fetishized uh objects within the kind of radical theology thing too like there's a whole kind of big thing about alcohol and so you get your kind of obsession with craft beer or with uh certain spirits or with or even with like coffee or whatever you know it's like guys you know do you not see you're just replacing an obsession with one fetishized divine object with with a different one i mean like come on you know and i I just find that really interesting that there's only there's very often a certain way that people are prepared to go in terms of deconstruction before it genuinely just becomes too uncomfortable and and People don't want to know. They don't want to know. It's like so. I'm all for like. Where's, think, where's the new generation? You know. I think we've heard uh, Pete Rollins say before, like you know, a lot of times when he sees people go through these these shifts or these movements, uh, they maintain the same texture throughout. Like you know, yeah. they jump from one fundamentalism to a new fundamentalism, mm-hmm. new terminology. You know, new you know totem and taboo. But yeah, yeah. But, but it's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, you know, I think that's a risk with the work he's doing too. Is okay. How do you, how do you try and stop that happening um, in terms of people just kind of consuming his his product in that way uh, and using that as a way of avoiding genuine engagement with 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 issues? Mm, yeah, because that's where it gets scary. When you don't have a proxy to go in front of you anymore. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is where it gets terrifying. But that's so yeah. good. That's the good stuff. Well, yeah, that's what I think. That's <laughs> <laughs> but, um, naked on the yeah. front lines. Yeah, get naked on the front line. You know, that's, <laughs> that's, I'm all for that. That's going to be our lead-in quote when we like te- tease this episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. May even be the title of the episode with some good '70s like baseline music oh, playing yeah. in the background. Yeah. No, we I get. Provide pictures. I provide pictures. We got to do some. We got to do some. Be- we got to do some Beatles for Kester. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, we'd, yeah. We'd have to pay out the nose for that one. <laughs> we don't have permission. <laughs> we don't have permission to do that. If I could only get in touch with Paul McCartney, I just John, yeah, you could just yeah, sing it a cappella, John. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Oh, well, good I, stuff. I think this is actually a perfect lead into what your book's about, and yeah, I think mm. this would be a good time for you to to really kind of lay the groundwork for our listeners, like. I love this comparison that you make between, um, you know, our, our pursuit of all things, um, escapist, um, mm. 
And, and so whether it's drugs or technology, uh, specifically, I love, I love the way you pull technology in because I wholeheartedly agree. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but even, even you, you come around to religion and how all of these things, although in and of themselves are fairly neutral, they can, yeah. they can be used in a way that um, kind of reflects the way you know, a lot of people live their lives, which is to avoid pain at all costs, yep. avoid our issues, yeah. um, and, and as you say, kind of try to fly away from them. So I wondered if you yeah. could just kind of lay the groundwork for for kind of how you make this comparison in in your book. Well, I mean, um, I, I try and start right at the beginning of of what we might term technology, I suppose, you know, with like the gift of fire. Uh, and there's some kind of lovely ideas in really ancient uh, texts about people observing fire and how this kind of light would lift up and try and almost make its way back up towards the big lights that people could see in the sky, you know? So there's a a very ancient sense of altitude being something about being drawn to the light. And clearly, you know, when people die, what happens is they fall to the ground. So like the earth is bad, up there in the heavens, maybe it's a lot better. And, you know, around the, the 17th century and even 16th century or earlier, you know, you've got this idea that the moon is perhaps where the Garden of Eden is. And why wouldn't it be? Because it's pure white and uh, it doesn't fall. Like it just sits up there in the sky. So it must be made of, of higher stuff. So there's this kind of idea that if, we, if only we could achieve flight, we could overcome our fall. Um, now, if you look at the pursuit of that um, technologically, that is very, very much right from the word go, tied in intimately with the, with religious ideas as well. And it begins with, in fact, a prohibition on, on human flight. Like people begin to imagine it can happen, but then in the kind of art of the early Renaissance, you're like, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. You know, to fly would be um, to kind of, you know, press into God's particular area, and we shouldn't do that. So if you look at the kind of Babel story right, there. Right, right. Um, you know, you've got this Babel myth of people uniting together a common language and building this tower and God kind of like smashes it all down. So there's no way, you know, that would be bad. So there's a real kind of prescription on flight. Now it's only as the Renaissance begins to develop that, that flight becomes a more possible and B people begin to question the idea of, of whether this religious prohibition on flight is actually true. So when you come to the very first, um, human flight in the Montgolfier balloon, which is an extraordinary piece of technology, you've also got the whole kind of politics and religion around it, whereby what's happened is that people have had to give themselves religious permission to be able to experience this technology of flight. And this is kind of weird flip in that when the first flights occur, it's not that we are impure things, you know, uh, sullying this wonderful divine God. It's that as we rise up into the skies, we become more pure. And all of the early literature on flight tells us that. It's like, oh, you know, it's amazing. It's this place of, of beauty and grace and stillness, and we, we all become pure. And actually, we then get a divine perspective on the world below, mm. which makes us a little bit more like God. Yep. Um, so you have this really kind of extraordinary thing that as we fly higher and higher, people are beginning to see that there is still this religious dimension to it. And my God, you've only got to play any of the tapes of the NASA Apollo missions. I mean, they're absolutely jam-packed full of P-51 
people reading out psalms and breaking bread on the moon and talking about, um, you know, this kind of divine perspective, but very much from a kind of power perspective too, of being able to look down on other human beings and see them from that divine point of view. Now, what I try and do in the book is to say, well, actually, if you look at the history of psychedelic drugs, it's doing exactly the same thing. And this, of course, is, you know, intimately tied in with the, with the history of religion. I mean, you, you can't really tell the story of ancient religion without telling the story of the herbs and preparations and special substances that have been used uh, to kind of lift people into divine ecstasy. Um, you know, it's just absolutely jam-packed full. Now, of course, LSD, which is invented um, during the Second World War but comes to prominence in the 50s and 60s, is this kind of turbocharged convenience store um, entheogen. You know, it can kind of generate images of God within it. And this ties in perfectly with the kind of new turbocharged rocket technology, which is taking us up into space. It's amazing. Which also ties in perfectly with a brand new charismatic evangelicalism, which is, you know, rather than spending six, six years as a monk, like ping, lift your hands, <laughs> yeah, uh, speaking in tongues, and you can reach this place of great spiritual height, um, you know, all in one go. Now, that comes, of course, out of, the, out of the black Pentecostalism. And, of course, here you're dealing politically with a group of people who've been so oppressed mm. that they, they don't have anywhere else to go. The only move they can make is the vertical one. So it's no surprise that in a kind of oppressed black Pentecostal church, you see people moving in, into that ecstatic mode. And what I try and argue in the book is that actually we, you know, there are these modes of oppression which other people are feeling too, not the same as the oppression of, of uh, ethnic minorities, but in terms of feeling, you know, the kind of Cold War, the kind of changes in society that happen after World War II, and people are feeling like, oh my God, you know, the encroaching of consumer capitalism, I've got nowhere to go. So bang, we just lift off into the sky. Like, let's get out of here. And the hippies do it, and the scientists do it with the space missions, and the religious people do it too. And all of them pretty much fail. Mm. But out of the ashes of all of that comes, you know, this new high, which is high technology, you know, which is now, uh, is there a way of lifting ourselves up into perfection, which we can do using the little communion digital thin wafers of silicon. And that really is, is a, I think, what's behind so much of this technological move. And it's really, uh, in the book, I tell the story of like the, you know, the, the birth of the internet and how that happens mm -hmm. and how it was about trying to achieve a more perfect human being, a more perfect human memory. Um, yeah. And of course, with all these things, you know, with, 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 with uh, Google search and all these things, and like, you know, with Skype and video calling, we can be omniscient pretty much. We can be uh, omnipresent, you know, we, we, can, we can mediate our presence into other places. So we're becoming like angelic through this technology, you know, yeah. it, 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 it turns us into angels. So I try and tie those things together and say, you know, technologically and religiously, those things are basically the same thing like the technology of religion is the same as the religion of technology Indeed, you are 
this is this is so so interesting. So we've got you know the Apollo mission. We've got you know LSD psychedelia. We've got you know yeah. Pentecostal charismatic you know evangelicalism. We've got technology and the internet. You know all of these mm-hmm. things going for this this escape, this transcendence. Yeah. Um, and you kind of touched on this, but I'd like to draw it out a little bit because I think it's I think this is like a great point for meditation and reflection. Is yeah. why why do we want to escape so bad? Like what like we touched on the fall, we touched on a little bit of like you know the world's going to hell, you know, encroaching capitalism, things like that. But like, you know, what, what, let's talk a little bit about that. Like, you know, what, what is starting to happen? And, you know, you kind of talk through the book about how, you know, this, this dream of flight and these, these kinds of things in our consciousness have been there all along. Mm. Like, wh- so I think, yeah, I, what, what is this? I, What's going on here? I think there are two things going on. One of which is, is like the, the kind of conscious projection or the kind of the story that gets told by the priests, by, you know, Steve Jobs, bless him, by everyone, it, it is that what this technology can do, what this religion can do, is lift you out of trouble, oppression, and, and uh, pain, out of mortality, into perfection, into becoming whole again. But actually, behind that, what's actually going on is that there is a system which is itself trying to become more divine. Um, so the, the, the promise is that we will become gods. And the, the promise is made, but not delivered on. And what happens instead is that there is a system which itself becomes more powerful and more divine. I mean, you know, we, we upload all our data mm-hmm. to Google. I mean, you know, Google knows all the numbers of the hairs on your head. It knows all your movements. It knows all this stuff. You know, that is a system that is becoming functionally divine. Um, but the promise is, is that we will become that. We will know all things. We will be able to extend our lives. We will become kind of more perfect in that way. So I think there are kind of two interesting things going on in that there is the ancient promise that we will become like God. And you, you know, you can read that back in Genesis. I mean, that's right there, you know? Yeah. Of course, yeah that's of course the, have, that's the, you know, the diabolical promise, right? Yeah. Eat the apple. Ha ha ha. Great name for a company. Great name for a thing. Uh, <laughs> and, and you know, you will become like God. You will know, you will have all knowledge. Um, but what's happening is like the opposite is that there is another system which, which feeds off that and becomes more powerful. So we have to be really careful about wherever we see that promise. And this is what, this is what, I, what I think is so powerful about the, the kind of radical Christian narrative, is that what it offers us is a means of tearing that divine promise down. Mm. Like, you know, the crucifixion is a way of putting those gods to death and saying, no, we focus on on loving one another. That's what it boils down to. And then we resist that temptation to try to ascend, to try to become more divine, um, by which we mean more powerful. You know? So um, it, it's really, there is this ancient human desire to, you could say, become like God, but more poignantly to become God's. 
And if you look back in the kind of uh, ancient kind of Greek stuff uh, of kind of Plato and how that's taken on the Renaissance, you know, there are people who genuinely believe that with the perfection of human memory and human intellect, we can become divine. And that is exactly what the dream of the artificial intelligence singularity community is, is that in knowing all things and in uploading our consciousness to the cloud, another great technology, theological named product, um, this kind of cloud above, we will become basically divine and immortal. Um, the problem I have with that is that it's bullshit and actually there'll be some company that's going to become more powerful. Yeah, it, it, as I was listening to you talk, the, the one thing that kept sticking out to me is it sounds like like the system, as you call it, is mm-hmm. almost this capitalistic machine that is trying to convince us of, um, you know, that, that we're, we're missing something or that there's a lack and that it can sell us something that will that fill that void. Absolutely right. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, and I think that's just totally, totally fundamental um, to all of that. And, and, it, and it is that idea of um, trying to sell us something that will that will elevate us. It will take us a little bit higher, you know, so we'll, we'll live a little bit, uh, you know, and a bigger house, a bit further up the street. We upgrade the whole time. It's all about this vector upwards. And actually it's a lie. It's a lie. Um, and you know, I end the book by, by asking for a plea of, of, of returning to the earth. And I think we're, we're really seeing that like, you know, clearly environmentally, we have to be serious about the earth rather than focusing on accessing heaven. Mm, yeah. It, it, it almost seems, it occurs to me that it's almost like a, a cosmic, like a little kid in a cosmic bedroom, you know, where, where mom yeah. comes up and says, hey, you need to clean your room, and you try to sneak off into the yard and play basketball for a while or something. And, but, like, <laughs> you can sneak off for a while, but ultimately the problem is still there. You still need to clean your room. You yeah. know, the mess yeah. is not going to go away on its own. And it yeah, almost seems or, like that's what you're saying, but on a much, obviously a much larger scale. Right. Yeah. But there's still this myth that somehow we can go and colonize other planets. And right. you see this in the kind of interstellar film narrative where basically people have totally screwed up the earth. Yeah. So let's get, you know, a, a group of people together and we'll, we'll go and colonize some other planet and restart humanity. And it's like, yeah. Uh, how many kind of sub-Saharan Africans are you going to put on that mission? You know, like how many people who are poor, who are gay, who are, you know what, do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. Yeah. how you start humanity It's going to be a bunch of, well, you see it. I mean, you see it already. Like who's going to be the first space tourist. It's like, you know, quarter of a billion quid and this that, and the other. So, um, and, and it's such a ridiculous hope anyway. I mean, you would be talking generations and generations and generations of humans traveling towards some star that will it support us we don't know right. we've got to look after we've got to look after the home that we have and the planet we have and i think that's why you know radical theology in terms of of being serious about politics and economics as well as being serious about theology all 
always has to end up with an environmental, with uh, a kind of political dimension too. And it worries me if that isn't obviously being critiqued in a sensible way. Like, okay, well, you know, why are you still talking about about Christianity? <laughs> you know, right. there's got to be something wider that that you're thinking about here because it has much, much, much wider implications than just someone's personal faith. Right. I think, um, you know, a common thread between somebody else we interviewed, we actually talked about her just before, you know, recently we were talking to mm. Diana, Diana Butler Bass last year and she was talking about, she's like, man, she's like, all I ever hear, I, I hear a million sermons on resurrection all the time. Resurrection, yeah. resurrection, resurrection, you know, die and go to heaven, resurrection, blah, 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 blah. She's like, you almost never hear sermons on incarnation. Almost, no. almost never. Yeah. And there's yeah. the chord of, you know, what you're talking about, like, you know, in Christianity, this, this, this coming down, this embodying, this, this owning, this, this yeah. sensing the connection, the unity, um, yeah. the unification. Uh, there seem, I mean, there seems to be a lot of material, you know, in the, in the Christian tradition that, that speaks to that and get and you know, gives gravity, you know, to use the term intentionally, gives gravity, a lot of gravity, theologically, to... Yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, I absolutely think that. And I think, you know, this idea of, of being serious about, uh, you know, this mechanism of how do we put our gods to death? And, you know, what do we mean by God? Well, I mean, anything, any system which we offer worship to, which takes us away from caring about one another. Yeah. Um. And, you know, you, you can look back, you know, like the classic examples of the guy who's like, hey, you know, it's not like I want to send you to the gulag, but the system says I have to. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Um, and, it's not, oh, it's you not know, me, it's the system. It's not me. Yeah, it's not me, it's the system, you know. So, um, and for most people, you know, the God that they serve, they don't even particularly name. But, you know, if you look at the kind of way that people labor and the way that they offer their labor for uh, a kind of, you know, not exactly a fantastic return, but they keep on doing it and keep on doing it, even though their family suffers, even though so they don't see their kids, you know, all of this stuff. It's oh, like, yeah. whoa. Um, you know, there's a hell of a lot of worship going on there of, of some system which we, um, yeah, are offering our devotion to. Um, so it's about how does that, how does that, uh, kind of crucifixion virus work in those ways as well. Like, how does it help us to bring those things to a point of death um, in order that we can live a better life afterwards? Like, how does it help us to destroy all of the gods that are existence in existence in our lives? You know, yeah. people say to me, "What you know? What what you don't believe in God anymore?" I'm like, "No, the opposite. I think there are gods everywhere. You know, there are right. systems that people are serving That's the that they don't even know. Of. Yeah. yeah, there's just so many." gods everywhere and we've got to put them all to death you know like um so it's uh no and and I, christian i get what you're saying yeah like even the christian god like you know one of the most and you know that's always going to make people mad i was talking to my i think it was my mom recently about mm. like you know even even the even the christian idea of god she's like what do you mean like, are you kidding me and, <laughs> and i was like no, no 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 listen to me like i think i think jesus actually said this and she's like yeah. well what are you talking about and i'm like well you know at the end when you know he's giving this kind of you know apocalyptic look at, you know, you know, his return or like how it's going to be later, you know, the end times and the judgment or whatever. There's going to be all mm. these people running around using the name Jesus, Lord, Lord, you know, oh, we did all this stuff. We were working miracles. We were preaching. We were, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, 
I have no idea yeah. who you are. Well, who are the people that did know Jesus? Oh, the people that were visiting the, the people in prison that were, you know, clothing the naked, that were, you know, giving, giving water to the thirsty and feeding the hungry. And, oh, you know, you were doing that to me. That's where I was. And they're like, we didn't know that that was you. And he's like, exactly. <laughs> and there's, there's, there's a death of God idea in that parable. Yeah. That I just think is so brilliant. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, Man. totally, totally agree. Yeah, yeah. Um, but people don't want to, they don't want to do it. They don't want to do it, you know. Um, and I, I just think that's just so interesting. I, I mean, the, the work that I've been um, really, really supportive of is the work that Tad DeLay is doing. Oh, uh, yeah. Which is, you know, I mean, it's incredible, this book that he wrote that basically predicts that a character like Trump will come along and it predicts all of the things that the evangelical community will do, you know, uh, in terms of supporting something which is so inherently wrong and immoral and yet can be justified because of, you know, these particular tiny little things. It's extraordinary. Oh, he's, yeah. he is the, he is the ultimate, he's the ultimate, uh, priest for capitalism. Yeah. He's, he's a wonderful yeah. priest. Yeah, he is. I mean, he really is. Yeah, yeah, yeah wonderful priest. And that book is great too. Uh, you're talking about Cynic and the Fool. Yes. Oh yeah. man, he he's actually really? his. Uh, we we recently interviewed him about his new book. He'll he'll be out. Oh, great. A couple, I think, just a couple weeks before this episode will air. So it'll be yeah. a nice compliment mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I thought a lot of. I was actually wondering if you guys might, might have been friends because it seems uh, the common chord between you two is is not so much about belief. You know, using air quotes, belief, but like how belief functions. Yes, yes, absolutely. Love yeah, no, that. Uh, we should all be asking those questions. Exactly, exactly. We should be. And, um, you know, and it, and, it, and it works exactly the same way politically in the UK as well. You know, it's, um, it, you know, quite clearly Brexit is a religious phenomenon. I totally believe that. T- t- like, tell us what you mean by that. Elaborate just a little bit. Well, but, but there's no... There's no possible way of engaging someone rationally about it. It's uh, a pure, it's a pure ideology. So you can't change anyone's mind. Um, and you know there are there are ways of. I mean, you know, so basically, if you make a point, whatever, then it's just oh, you know, you're a heretic or right. or some other way of of putting you putting you down on that. And they would they would rather destroy everything than admit that anything was was wrong and you know you kind of get that sense like people would rather that the u.s was torn to pieces in every possible way than to admit that maybe they uh you know were wrong on some small aspects whatever yeah right Uh, and and you, you know you see that now in the uk it's like well it would be better if we paid 600 million pounds a week um rather than actually just admit that, yeah, maybe we got it a bit wrong. So it really is functioning in a, in a highly religious, religious way. And it, yeah, it's how that belief functions and how it is possible to even begin thinking about changing that. It, it's interesting because I thought of um, a quote by our mutual friend, Pete Rollins, when he said, you know, um, I believe he's the one that said this anyway. <laughs> he said, huh. he said, if you want to know what somebody believes, look at what they do. Yeah. And he gives the example of, you know, like I tell, you know, I'll, I'll tell people, yeah, I don't, I don't want little kids making shirts that I wear, but yeah. yet I wear this shirt and I know 
in the back of my mind that there's a possibility that it was made in sweatshops and, you know, somewhere across the world. Um, and I, I think that's truly reflective in specifically right now in the way that we vote, you know, especially in mm. the United States, it's, you know, it, it's, it's such a weird paradox. It's, it's, you know, uh, we say we, we preach one thing out of one side of our mouths and then we, we vote uh, seemingly uh, the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and that is just, um, yeah, it's exactly it. And it's how we begin to deal with that system that is just so fascinating, just absolutely fascinating. Like, you know, how the hell are we going to get out of this mess? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, how do how how do we? You know, it's how do we indeed? What's the first step in the in the right direction? You know, it's it, we've been we've been asking ourselves that for the better part of yeah. the year. <laughs> like, clearly, it's buying my book, but uh, you know, beyond that, yes. It's, uh, <laughs> and that book is getting high: a savage journey into the heart of the dream of light. Which, which, oh, by the way, God. if if people didn't know better and they just looked at the titles of your books without looking at the cover art, they'd oh, be like, great. "This guy wrote a, a book about." Uh, drugs and pirates. So, <laughs> I so I feel like we should yeah. give some context. You know, this is not a book about necessarily about drugs or about specifically pirates. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of hilarious being a school teacher where kids come in and they're like, "Hey, I looked you up and I watched." <laughs> <laughs> like there, there is there is a spaceship on the front of this book. So you know, yeah, yeah, which is an image I just totally love. Uh, I, you know, I, yeah, I love pirates. I love spaceships. I'm not going to say I love drugs, but, uh, you know, um, but it, I, it's all, it's all endlessly fascinating in it. And it's all stuff that we should be looking at. You know, I, I, I do think that there is theology everywhere. Uh, and I, I kind of do enjoy thinking, okay, well, you know, is there something in this pirate stuff? Is there something in, in space travel? There's something there that actually we can help us to to think in a theological way i suppose yeah it's all there <laughs> yeah i think i think that having an unbelievable respect for humanity in yes. all of its in all of its weirdness in 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 all of its significance uh, i think i heard yeah. you say on an interview or maybe it was in the book i can't remember now you were you were talking about um how we have this consciousness and you know we're aware that we're aware and yeah. and we're almost uh, like blown away by it. Like, what do we do with this now? Like, this is this is absolutely incredible. <laughs> and I think, yeah, and I think that's that is is the probably the greatest issue that humans have faced is that in becoming conscious, we want to find some way of explaining how we became conscious. Right. And the easiest thing to do is to say, well, someone made us conscious. Yep. Because that would devolve us of some responsibility for being conscious because it wasn't our fault it happened to us um and it is an extraordinary miracle like our our consciousness is completely incredible um but actually the the hardest thing we can do is to say well what if we are just conscious and and yet it's just us you know and we've got to take responsibility for one another yes that's a really remarkable thing to have to do mm. um and you know, how does that help us then to think about caring for each other? Um, and, you know, the other thing I say in the book is, is you know what? I, you know, the universe doesn't care. 
The, only, the universe yeah. doesn't care. The only ones who can do that is us. Damn We're sure. the only ones who can do that. Um, and I think that that understanding that the universe does not give a crap about us is something that space travelers helped us to grasp. Is is like you know what? It's 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 not like some beautiful caring space out there, like we're the ones who are going to care for one another. We're the only ones who can do that. Yeah. What, what, what a wonderful, what a wonderful privilege. Yes, absolutely. What a wonderful privilege. And what a, what a shame to kind of, uh, throw that away by, by pretending that it might be otherwise or saying, you know, throwing the responsibility onto something else. Um, absolutely the best privilege. I think that's a, a wonderful thought to leave our listeners with. I think we could go all day long, but uh... all night long. <laughs> oh wait, John! John's signaling me. He's got something. <laughs> yeah. Hang on, John's got something. Yeah, I, I just want to get your because I, I feel like we need to, to leave people with a, with a little advice. And one of the things sure. that that uh, I, I was wondering is obviously our theology, and this is very prevalent. I think in the United States, what you're what you're saying is this very. You know, we like to categorize. We like to uh, oh, think yeah. of things in very dualistic terms. It's right mm-hmm. or it's wrong. It's black or it's white. You're Republican or you're a Democrat. You know, that sort yeah. of thing. Um, and, and so it, it's, I think it's reflected in our theology as well. And, and, and we're right along with you uh, in terms of this whole escape plan theology. It's, you know, mm-hmm. uh, if we believe the right things and we check all the right boxes and we have perfect attendance and we donate to, you know, some good charity, then we're going to get into heaven and we're going to leave all the cinders and all the crap behind. And so we don't have to clean up the mess, you know? Yes. And, and so, you know, like I said earlier, I think, I think any of these things that we kind of grab onto as kind of our vices or our golden calves, as it were, um, whether it's technology or, um, Adam and I were talking about your book, uh, before we started recording, you know, it could be alcohol, you know, anything that you could use to escape. Yeah. 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 But obviously those things aren't inherently uh, bad or evil or even have that mm. uh, intended purpose. So is there yeah. a balance that we can strike uh, where religion can be a good, positive thing, where you know, flight can be a positive, good thing, where technology can be a positive, good thing? Um, is, there, is there a balance? Have you found a balance? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you guys have celebrated Martin Luther King Day recently. Is that right? Yes, we have. Yes. Uh, and, you know, I think, I think he is that perfect balance in that, uh, you know, he said, I, I've been to the mountaintop. Now, what, what that does is when you achieve that level of, of moderate altitude, call it a mountaintop, you do get perspective on what is below. But the issue is not then to lift away from the mountaintop and to disappear into heaven. The issue is then to come down from the mountain having gained that perspective and begin to work to put it right. And that I think is, is, is the key to it is to say, look, you know, flight's not bad. Flight's a wonderful thing. It's completely incredible, but we don't lift off in order to then disappear. We lift off in other, in order to get perspective to be able to then come back down. Mm. And that for me, I think is exactly, um, the right thing to be doing. And, and in a sense, you know, we could talk again about, uh, uh, about the place of religion within that, in that the religious space, I'm not saying it's, it's a, a bad or a wrong space, but, uh, you know, what can be beautiful about that space is that it gives us an opportunity to reflect, not that we then go into escape mode, 
but in order that we can then return and do what we can back on the ground. And that, for me, is the place that we need to be at. So the airtime maximizes the potential of the ground time. Absolutely right, yeah. And sometimes we need that in order to be able to gain that perspective. But the temptation, of course, just as with the hippies and the LSD lot found, is you know you want to stay high the whole time. And in fact, it becomes an escape rather than a means of understanding better and giving ourselves energy to help, whether that is with the peace movement or whatever it was. Mm. Oh man, that's good. That is so good. That that's that reminds me. Oh, oh, go ahead. Uh, it's been great to talk to you guys. Yeah, you too. Uh, yeah, we got. We have to end there. I think. Yeah, that went this by point. so fast. I just looked up at the clock and I was like, <laughs> "What? Oh man! Oh dang it!" <laughs> <laughs> so so before we let you go to bed, because we know it's super late um, in the UK right mm. now, um, we want people to go out and and obviously find your work and keep on top of what you're what you're getting into these days. So what's the best place to find your book? What's the place, best place to connect with you um, online and that sort of thing? So, yeah, I'm on Twitter occasionally, um, at Kester Bruin, and uh, you can get the books in all good local bookstores. They can order them in. Uh, there are certain jungle-based online retailers that stock them too. Um, <laughs> so the latest book is, is called Getting High, and then there's a, there a book on pirates called Mutiny and so on. I've also done a couple of TED Talks for those people who are interested in that stuff. Actually, right now, um, a few months ago, I won a couple of grants. So from, from the Arts Council in the UK and Society of Authors to work on some fiction. So I'm, I'm writing a novel at the moment. So Do that's it, well. Kester. That's awesome. Do it, Kester. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's the plan is... My my real heart is in, is in telling stories like that. So uh, the plan is... about astronaut pirate <laughs> priests <laughs> that take it's, lsd it's it's about a boy wizard with a scar i don't think it's been done before <laughs> i'm in it i'm in it i think there's money to be made i'd read it i'd read another one i'd read another one love it well hey thank you so much I, I this has been a long time coming and we appreciate your your flexibility and and the fact that we finally got to make it happen and and, uh, it's been great. It's we been so great appreciate it. Guys. Oh, so much fun, Kester. Thank you so much. Gave us a lot to th- think about. Cheers, man. Take care. You too, buddy. Bye-bye. Every time we do this, I just, I look forward to debriefing because I'm like, I couldn't, we couldn't have planned that all the, we would talk about all those things. Yeah. I mean, so we didn't, this guy wasn't even on our radar until Pete Rollins was like, hey, you guys should talk to Kester Bruin. Yeah. Like, okay. You know, then, you know, we played tag with him for a while. Yeah. And finally get his book. We finally read through it and we're like, oh my gosh, there's a lot of resonance here. Yeah. Yeah, and the the fact that he's able to tie it into um, just our sense of escapism or mm. our desire to escape, and like we really do have this addiction to avoiding pain, avoiding suffering, avoiding uh, hardships, and like really just distraction in general. Oh and, my gosh! Like it made me. Th- I thought of it again the other day. I was watching. I think I was watching something with my daughter, and there was some 
I think it was, I feel like it was a preview to another cartoon movie or something. <laughs> and they were just like these kids wandering around on their iPhones and just ran into each other, you know, because so funny. Yeah. I'm cracking up and she has no idea why, but I'm like, we, we, we really have this crazy addiction, whether it's technology or, or as Kester says, drugs or, or thrill seeking, whatever the case may be. Yeah, I was just having a conversation with a um, a good friend, friend of the podcast uh, out in out in Portland, our buddy uh, Derek. Abert. Oh yeah, yeah. I was just Bird talking to him. He's writing this really cool piece um, based on Ready Player One, and he's taken this whole spin about uh, all of this um, this these futuristic sci fi stories, you know, like Blade Runner and Ready Player One, Matrix, and you know all these kinds of things as this um, this vehicle for contemplating the idea of how much we all want to escape. Yeah. So how, have you watched, uh, we haven't talked about this, but have you watched the new Netflix series, uh, Altered Carbon? No, not yet. Okay, so it's, it's super, again, super futuristic, kind of dystopia, like in the like super far off future, and just the, the avenues for escape. If like there's any one thing all of these sci-fi reader, uh, writers agree on, it's like the ability for us to continue to use things to escape, whether it's virtual reality, the internet, just technology in general, is offering us this endless black hole labyrinth <laughs> of ways to escape in any way we want. Yeah. It is, I mean, forget NASA, forget drugs. Technology is going next level every single day. It's exponentially giving us more ways to just completely not be here. So Derek and I were talking about how, and it fits right into this conversation we just had with Kester, Derek and I were talking about how, oh my gosh, like, no wonder we want to escape. Life is incredibly difficult. Yeah. And being here and actually like struggling through it and facing what's inside of us, you know, my fears, my doubts, my insecurities, like uh, my, my wife, my kids, my mortgage, my job, my church, my, this is, I constantly feel like I'm being judged. I constantly feel like I'm not up to the task. Right. That's what reality does to you. It says, you know, you're really not ready for this. You're not ready to be alive. <laughs> it's like what reality screams at you. Yeah. So you want to escape. Yeah. You want a manicured, customized reality that you are in control of. And, oh, I just, it, it's so everywhere. Like engaging in life and actually being present, so hard. Yeah. I mean, it makes you think about the evolution of uh, society who goes from uh, looking at like, you know, those magazines, the the garbage magazines you see, you know, yeah. when you're in line at the grocery store. Right, right, right. And, and just kind of like losing yourself in like celebrity culture and like, oh, they've got it all so put together, never mind the fact that they're completely airbrushed and, and right. maybe their marriage is falling apart or whatever, but like they seem like they have it all. They have riches, they're driving the best cars, like going to the best vacation spots, whatever, just living the dream to like, you know, the advent of reality TV and like doing the same thing, escaping your crappy life mm. through, through vicariously through theirs to the next evolution, which would be to literally like virtually live that through virtual technology and like to live the life of your dreams. And why would you ever unplug yourself, you know, and, and actually live reality? Right. Because we're always looking for that next best thing or, or what my life should have been, you know, instead of, well, ironically, you know, the, the guests that, uh, uh, that we'll have on in a couple of weeks, 
uh, talking about being grateful. Oh, yeah. Hint, hint, wink, wink. Hint, hint. <laughs> so subtle. You're yeah. so subtle. I know. But like, you know, the interesting thing to me is looking back after kind of going through like, you know, deconstruction and being a part of this place where you're like, oh, man, I really need to look at like what's actually going on here is how much um, theology, religion, Christianity, church culture, things like that actually play into the ideas of escape mm. and the ideas of uh, not engaging in the struggle, but finding a way to um, be in control, finding a way to um, get everything you want. Yeah. Finding a way to be whole and complete and perfect. And, you know, it's all going to be great. And then you, you hit a wall and you go, oh, it's not working. Right. And that either means that, shoot, I don't really believe. So what does that mean for my eternal destiny? Right. Or this is all like a bunch of hooey. You know, it just really sucks. So like, I love, I love how a guy like Kester comes in, very personal. A lot of the stuff in the, in the book was just personal anecdote about stuff that he had experienced as a, as a child, you know, becoming a Christian, going through kind of deconstruction. And he doesn't, I don't think he uses that word. I think he actually does use that word at one point. Um, but anyway, this is, this is where we're all at. If you're listening to this space, figuring it out, figuring out what it means to not escape anymore, not put your fingers in your ears, not bury your head in the sand, but it, like actually take a good look at yourself and what you believe and how that's actually functioning in your life. And that's kind of what we're all about. Yeah. Not trying to lead you one way or another, but saying just like, hey, we'll just, let's put our feet on the ground for a second and actually just take a really good look at like what is actually going on here. Yeah. Take a deep breath and just listen to the stream, you know, hey, just for a second. That was very Zen of you. Thank you. <laughs> I've been reading a lot of Zen Buddhism lately. It's good stuff, man. It is. It is really good stuff. <laughs> oh, man. Well, um, that's really all I got. I mean, they should just check out some other podcasts with Kester, connect to his work, follow, yeah. him, follow him online, get his book, Getting High. Um, tell him we sent you. Yeah. And thank you to all of our people that are supporting us on Patreon. Yes, big thanks. For the people that are buying tickets for the Denver show. Every time somebody buys a ticket for the Denver show, John and I text each other and we're like geeked up, not that we sold another ticket, but that there's another friend that we're going to get to like meet and like, oh my gosh, remember this guy? We know him from Twitter, you know? Yeah. You know, uh, this is going to be so much fun. Like we're actually going to get to meet this person. We're yeah. actually going to get to hang out and have a conversation and exchange stories. You're going to get a real hug. Big hug. Big hug. Yeah. I think, I, I think that's the, the part that I think is the craziest is the fact that, you know, when you do a podcast, like, like we've been doing for almost two years now. Like we, we, you know, the, the closest interaction that we have for, with many of you is just, you know, through social media or, or, or email or whatever. And so a chance and an opportunity to go outside of our, our, our own city and actually meet some of you in person is going to be really cool. So it's going to be so much fun. We're looking forward to it. So everybody, if you want to come to Denver, you know what to do. Go to our website, check the show notes. Um, oh yeah. I have no clue. What band the I mu- picked this The music week. is so, a surprise. Check the show notes. Because we're a little behind right now. <laughs> yep. and, that's, and that's a surprise for you. Yeah. It's a little delicious treat. Yeah. Follow us on Spotify. Oh my gosh, I finally got Spotify. Yeah. And I'm actually following us on Spotify right now. And playlists, I have realized, I'm late to the scene. Yeah. Are the best part about Spotify. Oh, totally. I love the playlists and we have a good one. We have a great one. We have over 70 songs by 
60 some odd different artists and we add new ones every single episode. So once this episode comes out, there'll be another song by another new band on there and you can follow us. Did you like what our buddy Phil Britton tweeted the other day? That was the coolest thing ever. When he's like in a coffee shop and he hears a song and he's like, this sounds like something that John from the Deconstructionists would probably add to the show. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, you just made his whole life. <laughs> <laughs> that is like my other fun part of, you know, the, the work that that I try to do for the podcast is try to find, I like to surprise Adam. You guys don't know this, but I like to surprise him because he has no idea. I have no most idea. Most of the time what music I'm picking. I and, very rarely know what's going on around here. <laughs> <laughs> right now there's just behind Adam. You guys can't see it. There's just stacks of books because I'm in the process of moving out of this house and into another. And so the books are just getting piled up and put into boxes at this point. So, so many good books back there. I know. Such a delightful stack of books. We love you guys. <laughs> um, hope your seasons of Lent, if you're doing that, is going well and all that stuff. Thank you for listening. And we will be back soon with another tasty treat for you. But, in, but until then, for now, we are your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson. Keep deconstructing, everybody. Yeah, yeah.